The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. As Rick has already mentioned, in the last two Sundays we studied the Word and we studied prayer, the importance of prayer and how to be a praying church. And in order for us to be a praying church, we need to be praying individuals. And last Sunday, we looked at the prayer of Elijah, who was a man like us, and he prayed, and they stopped praying, and then he prayed and raining and so forth. And today, I want to talk about, as a church, again, let's talk in serious, let's talk church, kind of what I want us to be, kind of what I want us to focus to be as we move forward. So prayer is the most important thing. Another important thing is that we be a Bible Word of God-centered church. Now, the biggest division between Christians, folks, these days, no longer dominations, Baptists versus Presbyterians or Methodists or Catholics. It is between those who accept the Bible as the inspired Word of God and those who do not. These is where the divisions lie in Christianity today. You know, they are, in my opinion, one of the greatest enemies of the Word of God is places like this that we have this morning. And the reason I say that because we have people who say they believe the Bible, they fight for it, you know, they post all this stuff on Facebook and picture of a Bible, a flag, and a gun. But they're simply giving lip service to the fact that Bible is inspired infallible, has no errors, inerrant, and it's the authentic, true Word of God. And the reason I say that, because they don't study it. They don't even know the books of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Kind of reminds me of a Bible class. There was a young Christian there, and he raised his hand and said, I'm having trouble with Genesis. And right away, the teacher went into, you know, talking about evolution and so forth, and trying to tell him all these things, and he said, that's well and fine, but the problem I have, I can't find it. That's how well we know the Bible. They don't know it. They don't live by it. They don't stand on it. And we hear in the news, in the Christian news, churches are affirming, ordaining homosexual and lesbian pastors because, you know, their pastors got together and decided what was acceptable and what's not. When the Bible clearly in black and white tells us that it's an abomination. We see daily divisions in churches. As Rick read this morning, people do sow discord because they don't like how the church is being led or at least how God designed the church to be led. They have different interpretations. They, you know, they fight over the responsibilities over women and men and what roles they play. And really, they don't understand the concept of a body and how the body functions. He made us all different and gave us different roles so we can be one. They don't understand that. So they create their own followings, offer different gospel, and many follow them. Do you know that? Many people follow them. Sometimes I wonder... How do they get these followings? Are you trying to preach the truth and tell the people the truth? And they just turn away. You tell them a lie, and they love you for it. 
It's a weird thing. And the reason we have these types of issues in the world, in the churches, is because the churches are becoming more like the world. They're becoming more self-centered. They have the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. You know, it's all about the personality of a church. Maybe it's the pastor, maybe it's the worship leader, I don't know. But they just take something that takes center stage, anything else but the Word of God. And by ignoring God's Word, they create their own destruction. It may seem like a successful church, because, you know, in people's eyes, but they create their own destructions. We read in 2 Peter 3.16, it says, And also in his epistles, speak in them these things, in which some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. And this is nothing new. You know, we'd be, back in those days, as Rick read also, and it's kind of his whole reading today falls into my sermon. So thanks, Rick. It, it's nothing new. They had false prophets and so forth. And sometimes when people want to argue, and, and you know, sometimes people come, they have genuine questions. They're seeking answers, not to argue, but those that just come and you know they just want to argue and so forth. I just refer them to Matthew 22, 29. Where Jesus said to him, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And just leave it at that. But thank God for a rock of God's word. It is given breath by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. It was inspired. And folks, at this church, the word of God must be central in everything we do. Word of God first, everything else second. You know, we come to pray on Wednesday nights. One of the things that Mike does is first we read Scripture, we discuss it, ponder about it, and then we pray because that's what sets us to pray. So we have other things here, and I thank God for those, other ministries and so forth, but the main thing has to be the preaching of the Word of God. It means sometimes sermons will be a little bit longer than you used to. I know we'll open up the coffee shop soon, I promise. And you know, as to be a successful church in God's eyes, Grace Fellowship will ultimately unravel if we do not keep the pulpit central, where a man of God stands behind his desk, opens the book of God, preaches Christ of God, power of God through this Word of God. And folks, I hope this is recording. I'll tell you what, if you start hearing motivational speeches from me, now sometimes encouragement is needed, right? Bible, you know, we preach the whole Bible and it's not full of Bible hole, uh, bullet holes. So there is motivational things and encouraging things. But if that's all you hear and if you hear like, hey, give money, you know, if you start hearing prosperity thing. Get rid of me. Do yourself a favor and get yourself another pastor if I ever start doing that. Because the Word of God has to be central in the church. And you know, we call this book many different things. Bible, right? 
holy scriptures, God's revelation. And we would be correct in calling it all these things. But you know what God's favorite name for the Bible is? It's simply the Word of God. You see, the word Bible itself does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. And it appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it uses the word biblos. And biblos basically just means book, the book. You know, and if you look up a definition online, which I did, it reads this, Christian scriptures consisting of 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. That's what the Bible definition is. You know, that to me doesn't really describe or relate the authority of the Word of God. You know, sometimes I like to fantasize, and I wonder, like, when the Bible translators were translating it and so forth, why they call it the Bible, not the Word of God. Anybody watch Seinfeld? You know, Frank Costanza? One of his favorite lines is, I have a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. You know, I wish I had a time machine go back to those translators and tell them that. Why didn't you name it the Word of God? You know, sometimes I wonder, why didn't God put it on their hearts or whatever to call it the Word of God? Because that's what it is. You know, sometimes I wonder different things. I wonder, why doesn't God wants all about everybody saved, Right? So why doesn't he just, you know how we'll get a lot of people saved? Open up the heavens for five minutes. Let them show the spiritual war, the fight that's going on this very minute. You know, uh, there's a great example of that in 2 Kings. In chapter 6, verses 15 and 17, it says, When the servant, the man, we're talking about Elijah again, servant of the man of God arose early and went out. There was an army surrounded the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, Alice, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's two. What is he talking about? And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elijah. Folks, we often forget there's a spiritual battle going on. There's spiritual forces in play that we can't see. And here's Elijah and his servants surrounded by an army. His servants panic, and Elijah says, don't fear. Those are with us or more. He's freaking out like now Elijah lost his mind. And, you know, Elijah prays to God and says, God, calm down this millennial. Open up his eyes. Show him. Can you imagine the sight of a holy army? I mean, not just chariots, but chariots of fire. When you see that, wouldn't that make a believer out of you? You know, I'm going to go off script here a little bit. Katrina, this is not on the PowerPoint. I put it in when I was sitting here this morning. But in Daniel, you can write this down. In chapter 10, we kind of see the same thing. And I know we're going to park a little bit. We're going to talk about the Word of God, but... In chapter 10, in verses 4, it says this, Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris. This is Daniel. 
I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen. So now he's seeing somebody whose waist was girded up with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl. It's like stone. It's beautiful stone. His face like the appearance of lightning. So his face, lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his voice, sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. It's an angel, but it's not a typical angel as we see in pictures, right? I think if we see a real angel of heaven, we're going to be kind of freaked out. And then it says in verse 7, And and I, Daniel, alone saw saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But look here, they didn't see the vision. They were in presence of the vision. And it says, But the great terror fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. And then in verse 10 it says, So suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on my palms of my hands. And he said to them, said to me, O Daniel, Man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. Remember, same thing was happening. We looked at Peter when that jail break. He's like, come on, get up. He's freaking out. For I have now been sent to you. And while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And in verse 12, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, From the first day that you sent your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Do you see what he was doing? We didn't look at this last Sunday, but you see he was doing what we talked about, though, in his prayers. Talked about the importance of humbling himself when he comes to God. And for the first time he spoke, he heard his His prayers were heard, but they were not answered. You know about delayed prayer. But why was this particular one delayed? If you look in verse 13, it says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael of one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the later days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Daniel was a man of God, and he was kind of scared. So don't you think? Sometimes I wonder, why don't God just open up the skies just five minutes? How many people will see all those fake pastors and all that kind of stuff? Everything's settled. More people will get saved. You know. Why doesn't God do that? But I bet if God did, we'll probably have a worldwide toilet paper shortage. Everybody be freaking out. So there are many descriptions in the Bible, but the best description that I can think of and God's favorite description for what we call the Bible is the Word of God. And you'll understand why I'm so picky on this, just like on prayer. Because God himself calls the Bible the Word of God. Let me go through a couple of verses. There's more, but I'm going to read quite a bit just to illustrate my point. Mark 7, 13. 
not going to read the entire verses for time's sake, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down in many such things. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and all that stuff and how they started doing their traditions and, you know, putting other things before the word. And what'd that do? Make the word of God no effect. And then Luke 5, 1, it says, so it was, it was multiplied, pressed about him to hear. What would they want to hear? The Bible? No, they wanted to hear the word of God. In Acts 4.31, we see the 120 apostles, when they prayed in the place where they assembled, they were shaken, filled with the Holy Spirit. And after prayer, they were persecuted and so forth. They were hiding. But now, they're speaking with boldness. What are they sharing? The Word of God. Acts 12, 24 says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Romans 10, 17, so the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Ephesians 6, 17, you take a helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which, the, which, is the, which is the sword of the spirit? What is it? The word of God. Do we guys know how to use this book as a sword? You know, sometimes we use it as a club to bust people upside the head, but do we know how to use it as a sword? This is your weapon, and we'll talk about that here in a second too. Colossians 1.25, of which I became a minister according to his stewardship from God, which has given to me from, for you to do what fulfilled the word of God. Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 4.5, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again of not corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 2 Peter 3.5, for this willfully forget that the word of God, but by the word of God, the heavens were old and the earth standing out of the water and water in it. Basically saying, by the word of God, that's how everything came into being. And then in Revelation 24, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones and sat, sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Who? Then I saw the souls of those who were, had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and witness for what? For the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, folks... I read you different scriptures on purpose because whenever these words came out of the month of the apostles, prophets, Jesus, or wherever these, you know, these words, God calls the inspired, these utterances, the word of God. Some of you are probably sitting here saying this is self-evident. Who cares what they call it? I mean, what's the difference? Does that make it? I'll tell you what the difference is these days, because the more liberal a man gets in his theology, the less he likes to call the Bible the Word of God. Now, if you study theology, you, you would see, find that to be true. You know, people start calling it biblical records, biblical materials, Christian writings, record of God's revelations. It all sounds good. But, folks, it fuzzies the issues a little bit because it puts it 
but it really is like a half step behind. So when we talk about this, and if you're a member of this church, I want to get in your mind, big, plain, and straight, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. Everything he has to say, there's new, no new revelations or anything like that. Everything he has to say is here. This is the word of God. Now, as you can see, there's lots of scriptures that talk about the word of God and the work of God, what we call the Bible. But this book, folks, is not like any other book in the universe. And I hope you know that. Now, if you take God's word and go to Hebrews 4.12, I mean, I didn't know what, I'm talking about one of my favorite subjects, and you know, when you talk about the Word of God, your mind starts to jumble, get this, get that, it's just too much. But one of my favorite verses that describes the Word of God in the Word of God is Hebrews 4.12, where it says, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, when you say it is the Word of God, it has to mean some things. If it's the Word of God, number one, it has to mean, first point, absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Now, if you think of the logic here, if it was the Word of man, there's a possibility of some error right? But a God of truth, who is truth, cannot speak error. So the word of God to us means that it's absolutely perfect, doesn't it? It's absolutely perfect. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction of righteousness. That means all scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. And Proverbs 30, 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is what? Pure. Perfect. When you say, wasn't it written by humans? Of course it was. But nonetheless, it's the word of God. In 2 Peter verse 21, it says this, for the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So a lot of liberals today in liberal churches would tell you, well, you know, it was written by men, and you, that was the culture and things like that. It's different now, and, you know, they made some mistakes. The Bible was written by human beings, but God did not suspend their human facilities, but God overrode them. So there's no mistake. There's no, it's not a mechanical dictation here. As you read prophets, folks, you also see, you know, when God spoke to them, you read the apostles, prophets, you see their prayers, you see their praises, you see their fears, you see their victories, you see their earnings, you see their individualities, their personal character. And when you're reading Peter, you can say it's you're reading Peter. When you're reading Paul, you can say you're, it's Paul wrote this because he's in jail again. And when you're reading, you know, James... Old Camel Knees spent a lot of time in prayer. He was a hard-nosed pastor, and he was a brother of Jesus. So there's personality of all these people tell different personalities, but through it all, it's all God. 
how can that be? Well, if I can explain it to you this way. Let's say I was a musician. I sat behind the keyboard and I played it, right? The keyboard has its old personality, all that stuff. I'm just playing it. Sat behind the piano, has its own different tone and all different characters. Sat there, I played it. And I picked up a cello, I played it. Sounds different, but it's me. I'm the one that's playing all these instruments. Maybe I picked up a flute, which I'll never do in my whole life again. Played it when I was fourth grade. I blew in that thing so hard that I passed out and fell during a concert. But same God is taking all these men, various tendencies, characteristics, their own different personalities, and yet God himself has inspired these men. And you know, let me make this also clear to you as I can, because we hear a lot of churches that Old Testament doesn't apply. You don't even hear anything preached from the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is not a collection of wisdom of ancient men. It's not a collection of best religious thinking or good or something wrote by godly people. The Old Testament is the Word of God. It's the old Word of God. The whole thing is the Word of God. It's not the thinking of any men, good men, godly men, of ancient time by themselves. It is the Word of God. In Hebrews 1, to the first two verses, read, God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who has, he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. See, the Old Testament, God spoke to prophets. Because when Hebrews was written, there was no New Testament. The Old Testament, God was speaking to the fathers by means of the prophets. In these last days, since the coming of Christ, he's spoken again. God has spoken again. He's spoken, what it says here, spoken in the Son. So the gospel record God speaking through his son, Matthew, Mark, you know, Luke, and so forth, and John. And the book of Acts, God is speaking through the extension of proclamation, the message of his son. Epistles, God is speaking through the deep, profound understanding of the meaning of life and ministry of the son. And even the revelation, when the son comes back in all the glory, is God's communication to this world. Old Testament is God speaking, revealing himself. New Testament, God speaking, revealing his son. The Old Testament is God's self-revelation. The theme of the, that's the theme of the Old Testament from Genesis to the very Malachi. It's, it's basically all between is just the character of God. It describes the character of God. It's the revelation of God, who he is, what his attributes are, what his attitudes are, how to react to every possible given human situation, what he's like, what does he do, what doesn't he doesn't do. It's a revelation of God. It's not a story of man. You know, sometimes people say it's the story of human history, the story of Israel. These stories are there, but you're missing the main point. It's the revelation of God. We see God revealed through man, throughout history, through Israel, through all that happens. And sometimes his attributes are not even listed. You know, you read the Psalms. 
The Old Testament, again, is a revelation of God to show man what God is like, who God is, what God tolerates, what he doesn't tolerate, how God desires holiness and punishes sin. The New Testament is God revealed by his son in the life of his son and the message of his son and understanding that the work of his son and everything's coming to the son and establishing his eternal kingdom. But either case, folks, Old Testament, New Testament, you have to understand, God spoke. And what we have is indeed the word of God. This is not the word of man. The Bible itself, again, calls itself the Word of God, written by human instruments. But every jot, every point, every thought, thereby the Word of God, every word. Now, again, the more liberal man gets, sometimes they say it's inspired in the thoughts, but not in the details. They don't believe in the verbal inspiration. But every word in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 4, 4, it says, He answered, Jesus, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And again, look back to Proverbs 30, verse 5. This is an Old Testament. Every word of God is pure. And you know, you get into arguments. Thoughts are inspired, but not words. But the thing is, you can't have thoughts without words any more than you can have mathematics without numbers. So what I want you to understand, the entire Bible, what we call the Bible, the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, is the Word of God. And now I want to talk about the character, the absolute character. I want you to see the relation between the Word of God and Jesus himself. Have you ever noticed that God has the same name for his son as he does for this book? You ever notice that? In John 1, 1, 3, it says this, In the beginning the, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him nothing was made that was made. And then John continues in verse 14, says, in the word, what happened? Became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in 1 John, verses 1 and 2, it says this, that which was formed from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Our hands have handled concerning what? Jesus? The word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And look at Revelation 19.13. This says of Jesus, he was clothed, clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called what? The Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. You see, God's name for the Bible is the Word of God. 
God's name for Jesus. One of his names is the Word of God. Now, I'm trying to tell you is the character of Jesus and the character of the Bible are linked together. You see, if one is fraud, then automatically so is the other. If we don't accept this as authority in our lives, then you're really not accepting Jesus as authority in your life. These are his words to us and all he has to say. And as you study the Bible, the Word of God, you'll find out that Jesus, the living Word of God, and the written Word of God, they're pretty much the same. They cannot be broken. And you'll see the written Word. You'll see the written Word that presents Jesus, the living Word. And the written Word makes the living Word, Jesus, its hero. You cannot separate the two. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus and Bible are the same thing. They're not. They are not identical, but they are inseparable. God has linked the character of the two. For example, if we take some, you know, the living word and the written word, we take his humanity. He came from God. The written word came from God. It says, for the prophecy never came by the will of men, but the holy men God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the second Peter one twenty one. So the written word came from God. And then if you read Galatians four, verse four, the living world, the living word, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a moon, born under the law. You see, both living word and the written word came from God. And both the living word and the written word will live forever in eternity. And Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And 1 Peter 1, 21 says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. Forever. Psalm 119, 89, Forever, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And again, Psalm 119, 160, The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteousness judgments endures forever. Isaiah 48, grass withers, flowers fades, but the word of God stands forever. You see, there'll never be a time when the word of the Lord will not endure. And notice what the living word says of himself in Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive, what? Forevermore, amen. And have the keys of Hades and of death. Forever there will be the written word, forever there will be the living word, and both came from God, and both live forever, and both are absolutely unchanging. Do you know that? Times change. Sometimes they say, oh, God doesn't change. Yeah, but then they say the Bible changes. Well, if God doesn't change, the Bible doesn't change. Matthew 5.18 says, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, no one tittle, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Right? So the written word is the same. It was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today, and it should be preached the same way. 
And then what does it talk about Jesus? Well, in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And both, folks, this and the living Word of God are also the light in the darkness. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In 2 Samuel 2, 22, 29, it says pretty much the same thing. You're, for you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. That's the written word. And the Lord Jesus, who's the living word, and John 8, 12 said this. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Written word is light. Living word is light. And folks, let me tell you something. Both of these include a human element. And what I mean by that, that written word, you know, since it was written by men, well, the Lord Jesus was birthed by Mary. Now, the fact that Mary gave Jesus birth did not make Jesus imperfect because it came through men. The fact that men that wrote this book does not make this book imperfect because the same Holy Spirit that protected Jesus from sin and was a sinless sacrifice protected the writers from writing error. Now, if that happens to be true, if this is the Word of God, means it's absolute perfection, then we see it's the same character of the Word of God. There's a link between the Word and the life of Jesus and Jesus himself. You know, God calls Jesus the Word of God. Now, if we accept those things, that brings me to my third point. That means it has absolute authority. It has absolute authority. Go back to Hebrews 4.12. Let me read this for you again. For the Word of God is a living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. It's living. See that word, it's living? I think King James says quick. Other translation may say alive. This book is not like any other book. It breathes. It sings. It weeps. It's life in the power it possesses. There's life in this book. And when I say that, a lot of people say, well, you're kind of stretching it a little bit. You know, they try to be nice. But dear friend, there's truth that is in there, and I hope you believe this. If you don't believe it, you need to believe it. The truth here is actually life imparting power. It's alive. Listen to what Jesus Christ said about this in um, John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words 
that I speak to you, these words that he speaks to us, are the Spirit and they are life. So we often say, you know, there's people that are born again, they're alive, and the person that's not born again, they're pretty much dead. But in our physical world, they're both alive. But true life is in this book. The words that I speak to you, what he's saying here is that the Bible pulsates with life. And Paul echoes this in Philippians 2.16. He says, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. So that I may joy in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain and labored in vain. Friend, you know, I've been preaching, even though I'm, again, I'm getting kind of old, feel kind of old sometimes, 40, but I've been preaching long enough or experienced in my own personal life to understand this book is alive. It's alive, it's living, because it represents the living person, the character of Jesus. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. That the Bible represents Jesus. And properly prayed over, properly interpreted, properly preached, you know what happens? Jesus leaps off the pages. He really does. He leaps into your world, leaps into the church and your family, leaps into your heart. You'll come to know the living person of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's a living book and Jesus is alive. Other books are written about characters, right? There may be fictitious characters. There may be characters, people who lived and died, but they're all dead. Jesus is alive. And then look again in Hebrews 4.12, for the word is living and it says it's powerful. Now in Greek, the word is energy. Combination of two words here, it's energy. Not only does it have life, but it has life because it has energy. That means this is a busy book. You read other books. Somebody said, but this book reads you. I mean, the Bible has this incredible power, and it's at work. God's Word works. It's not like any other book that I've read, or maybe you've read. God's Word. Look what Jeremiah says at 23, 29 about God's Word. It says, it is not my word like a fire, says the Lord. And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Folks, there is power in the Word of God. Sometimes we try to attract people to our churches with anything else except the Word of God. And when you attract them with, that's how you got to keep them entertained. But we, we fail to understand there's power in the Word of God. I mean, think about it. This is God's Word. God created the world. How do you create the world? He just spoke it into existence. If you look at Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them, and breathed on his mouth. Folks, not only that, but think the power of God's word. And what I mean by that is we see, we're reading the word of God, many prophets, they suffered, persecuted, went to prison, Hostels, right? You look at church history, a lot of people suffered, burned at the stake, and so forth. 
for the Word of God because people didn't want the Word of God. But the thing is, 2021, the Word of God is still here. There's power in it because even though they chained apostles, prophets, pastors, you can't chain the Word of God. Look at 2 Timothy Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered as a troubler, an evildoer. So you see, he's suffering. You can tell this is Paul because he's in prison again, even to the point of chains. So he's in jail. But the word of God is not chained. Do you see the power of the word of God? He can't be chained. Communist Russia tried to Chained the word of God. Where, where's, where's communist Russia? Don't exist. The word of God is still here. The word of God is powerful and it cannot ever be chained. Then it talks about it's like a sword. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than two edged sword. It works like a sword, it does surgery on us. And I'm not going to exaggerate on this point, but everyone here who accepted Christ had a heart transplant. You had that surgery, so you know what I'm talking about. When you come to God, he gives you a new heart. Sometimes you read it, and it slices you open, doesn't it? And that's what it talks about, and it says divides. If you look at Hebrews 4.12, again, it says division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. He's making an application here. And if you were to come up to me and you were cut me open, slice me open, you could, first of all, see all my joints and dismember my joints. And if your knife is strong enough, you can, sharp enough, you can split my bones with my marrow. That's what God's word is like. That's why we call it the sword of the spirit. What does marrow represent? Marrow is the heart of the bone. The joints are the hinges. What he's saying is, when you read this book, God gets down to your attitudes. He cuts them open. He shows you who you really are. You see, when God made us, he gave us a body. And he put in that body a soul and spirit. Soul and spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, May God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the joints and marrow of the body. The soul is the soul. The spirit is the spirit. So right here in Hebrews 4.12. Now, the word of God is such a sharp instrument. If it were a literal sword, it could divide joints and marrow. Do you, do you see how fine of an instrument it has to be to do that? Anybody had surgery? There are different types of knives. Since the spiritual soul, uh, sword, it divides our soul and spirit. And mankind is absolutely unique in the because we were made in the image of God. For example, plants have a body. They don't have a soul or spirit. Animals have a body and a soul, but they don't have spirit. Only man has spirit because God made man in his image. God has a spirit. 
And how do we worship God? We'll talk about worship the next couple of Sundays. But how God says, what kind of worship is he seeking? I believe in John 4, verses 24, 23, there says, Father, seek such that worship in spirit and in truth. How important this instrument is that can divide that. And it's very important and trouble that we get into the spiritual world because trouble we have, you know, when we come in our spiritual life, we don't know how to use the sword, how to cut those things out from our lives. We can't divide between soul and spirit because we do not know the Word of God as we should. And the problem with many churches these days is, as you say, they got soul. You know, they got soul. That's great. There's nothing wrong with soul. You know, soul is your personal character, your attributes, spirit is the spirit. But the thing is, when you have too much soul, you may be entertained, you may be amazed, but you won't be blessed. You won't. You know, you may enjoy what I call the cotton candy preaching. Taste is good, but it never fills you up when you walk out. doesn't prepare you for the real world when you walk out. But when the Spirit comes, when you worship God in spirit and truth, then you'll be blessed. Because, folks, we can come and sing in the flesh, sing in the soul, or we can sing in the spirit. Not only this divides, it also discerns. Look again, it says, is a discerner in Hebrews 4.12 of thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's the word we get our word critic from, discerner. When you read the word of God and you're paying attention, it's going to criticize you. You know, reading the Bible, but the Bible reads us. It's going to criticize you. doesn't matter how holy you are. It will divide between soul and spirit. When you lay it open, you study it, starts doing that surgery on you. And for the saints, what does it do? It sanctifies them. This is the process of sanctification as you grow spiritually. In John 17, 17, it says, sanctify them by your truth. Well, what's the truth? How is he going to sanctify this? Your word is the truth. Has God cut anything out of your life? Anybody? He uses that blessed blade and will cut, remove, so radical, corrective surgery. And sometimes you see people. I mentioned my, you know, my wife's uncle not too long ago. Radical change. His mother's prayers were answered after long she was God, but God did some surgery. Because Psalm 107 says this, he sent his word after it criticizes you. Not only criticizes you, it heals you and delivered them from their destruction. And I think most of you are familiar with Matthew 18.8. It says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter the life 
lame and maimed rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. doesn't mean literally cut it off, but through the Word of God. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot. Cut those things out of your life. He's speaking spiritually here. You let the Word of God cut out of your life those things that offend God. Not only does surgery on us and sanctifies the believer, it also cuts the sinner. Let me show you how the Word uses the Word on the sinners. I've seen this book stab people. It stabs people, but not to death, but to life. Sometimes it just stabs people. Remember Simon Peter. He was taken to counsel between the prosecutors. Remember, they threw him in jail and so forth, and they said, hey, didn't we tell you not to preach and so forth? But instead of being on defense, he now gets on the offense. He becomes the persecutor, prosecutor. And when he starts preaching, all these priests, priests and this council, this is what it says about them in Acts 5.33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. I mean, Simon Peter used the word of God to slice them. Another illustration is Stephen, the Bible preaching, Bible preaching deacon, stood up in front of all of them. And he preached one of the most glorious sermons that was preached at the time. And in Acts 7.54, it says, when they heard these things, they were what? Cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That's the word of God. You've seen, I've seen that happen many times. And when we stand behind this pulpit, and the person is preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be some people that are going to get cut. And I'm telling you, the Word of God works on sinners. There's convicting power. It's used for converting people. It has converting power. Remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? Again, Simon Peter was preaching. And he took that sword of the Spirit. And 3,000 were added to the church. In Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostle, my brethren, what shall we do? The word of God has converting power, not entertainment. Sometimes we think we're going to win people over with entertainment. Converting power comes from the word of God. That doesn't come from me. It comes from the word of God. You know, there was a young man that stumbled through a snowstorm, and he wanted to get out of the snow. And he walked into a Methodist church, I believe. He was barely in his teens. He went and sat in the back of the church, but the pastor, because of the snowstorm and the church was so small, the pastor didn't even show up. So they had a man in the church go up to the pulpit, and he didn't really know what to say. But he opened up Isaiah 45, 22, and says this, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other God. That young man was cut to the heart. Do you know what the name of that guy was? 
Charles Spurgeon. One of the greatest Baptist preachers, we quote him a lot, so forth, of our time. It cut him to the heart. What was it that touched him? The wit. What was it that touched those people? The wit of Apostle Peter? How nice, eloquent he preached? No, it was the Word of God. And folks, there's converting power not my power of persuasion, converting power here in the Word of God. There's no other book like it. Ever read a geometry book? Anybody were converted here by reading a geometry book? Probably some people get unconverted reading that. Anybody read Shakespeare? You know, I had to read Macbeth. But I lost my religion. But there's no other book. And there's hundreds of us, and probably some in this room, just say, I don't know what about this book, but there's converting power. But folks, I want to tell you, there's not only condemning, there's also a condemning power in here. If you go back to Hebrews 4.12, it says it's a two-edged sword. Because the gospel is a savor of life unto life, and, or it's death unto death. And if the Bible doesn't cut you to heal you, it will cut you to kill you, folks. Because John 12, 48, Jesus says this, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. What's going to judge people? The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last days. Now, the other thing I want you to notice, not only it works on Christians sanctifying and, you know, as we work, walk this life, on sinners, has converting power. Do you know it also works on Satan? And that spiritual I was telling you about, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. But then in verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. So when you fight in your battles... You know, sometimes we use our opinion, our own strength. We use everything except the Word of God. When Satan came to Jesus, think about it. Satan was not afraid of coming and tempting Jesus. He misquoted Scripture. What did, what did Jesus do? He just quoted Scripture right back. Three times. You see, the devil has an allergy to this Word of God. He'll be afraid of, not afraid of anything, not afraid of us, but he's just afraid of the Word of God. So sometimes people argue with the devil and so forth, and I tell you, never argue with the devil. First of all, it's not worth it. Second, you're not going to win. Just point him to the Scripture and get out of the way. That's why I like Matthew 22, 29. I have no, you know, sometimes people, when they come and they just want to argue, I have no reason to argue with you. You believe what you want to believe? Remember Jesus said, if you go to a house and they don't receive you, swipe off the dust and keep going. And those words that you tried to tell them will judge them at the end. That's it. You can only do what God requires you to do. Point people to the Word of God. Step out of the way. So you can go forth against Satan, some of your battles, are going to be fierce, folks. 
especially in these days, they're going to be fierce. And when Satan comes, when temptation comes, remember, they don't come from God. They come from our own personal things. But when Satan comes to you, you better know how to say, it is written. That's why the Word of God is so important. Worship has its place and so forth, but that's not how you defeat the devil. It may soothe the soul, like I mentioned at the beginning. You know, calm this earth and the distress in spirit may pass. But the only way you're going to win any spiritual battles is by keeping the Word of God central in your lives. Is the Word of God important in your home, folks? Do your kids see you read the Bible? Study the Bible? Or is it tucked away, collecting dust? Because it's not going to be important to you. It's not going to be important to them. And if it's not going to be important to you, it's not going to be important to the church. So if you're going to be starting at home, everything starts with the home. And if you're a God word, word of God centered home, we're going to be word of God centered church. Again, we're just a church that's combined with all these individuals. And we'll talk about the body of Christ and how it works. But as we move forward, the Word of God must be preached. And again, I'm saying with all seriousness, for your own benefit, if you see me invite Joel Osteen, <laughs> just kidding. If I start preaching something other than the gospel, for your own sakes, get rid of me. It doesn't matter how many people we have. It doesn't matter anything. Because the most important thing and the only thing that's going to matter is the Word of God. And that's how Grace Fellowship will stand apart from and be the light in this neighborhood. 50 years, folks, coming up. 50 years. God is doing something. So as we move forward, we must do God's things God's way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these sermons that really just bless my heart personally. The priorities we have in life, priority of prayer, the priority of the Word of God, having it being central in all our lives and everything that we do, seek the kingdom of God first, and all the other things will be added, but sometimes we just put those things in reverse. Help us, Father, keep these perspectives in our lives. And Father, again, we pray for those and we honor those that served in the military and given up their lives for these freedoms that we still have in this country. And I'm so thankful that we're able to come freely pray and worship you and praise you because you're the only one that deserves all the praise and we thank you for your ultimate sacrifice, Father, on the cross. And as we leave this place today, Father, I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.